BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Senator Josh Hawley has now descended into a bottomless pit of immorality in which he is pretending to help Israel during the current crisis, when in fact he is helping only Hamas and Hamas's backers in Russia. And I will get to that presently. But while it is still hard to be shocked by anything out of the Trump prosecutions, here it comes. Jack Smith has now made the rather startling promise that he will both explain and prove in court not just that Trump stole top secret documents and American war plans, but why he stole them. All credit to Aaron Blake of The Washington Post, who has now found this extraordinary guarantee inside Monday's Smith filing to Judge Eileen Cannon in Florida, quoting that the classified materials at issue in this case were taken from the White House and retained at Mar-a-Lago is not in dispute. Smith and his team buried four pages and 10 paragraphs into their answer to Trump's demand to postpone the Florida trial until December 2024. Quoting again, what is in dispute is how that occurred, why it occurred, what Trump knew and what Trump intended in retaining them. All issues that the government will prove at trial, primarily with unclassified evidence, unquote. And we're waiting. That sadly is it, all of it, 
There is not one further reference in the Smith filing to be found by Blake or anybody else. Just that tantalizing promise that whatever it is, the government will prove it at trial. So let's go. For now, we are left to our own devices and to a few breadcrumbs Smith and other prosecutors have left along the way about that crucial word, not crucial to prosecution and conviction, but crucial to our understanding of what has happened here, motive. The hypothesized explanations of what Trump intended in retaining them begin, naturally, with money. There are no human relationships in Trump's life. Everything is a contract or a lawsuit or a non-disclosure agreement or a personal services deal or a naming license. So naturally, the monetary value of these documents would have been instantaneously clear to a creature to whom life has been like a 77-year-long episode of Antiques Roadshow. What is this worth? Who will pay me for it? Could I leverage these to get more money out of the Saudis in my golf deal? I give them three secrets and they give me bigger signage at the tournament in Qatar. The monetary explanation includes everything from the Russian Ministry of Defense as his client to the great collectors of presidential memorabilia. Then, of course, there is the prospect that Trump stole all the documents and secrets to use them later as blackmail and or revenge and or self-defense. We already know from the recording of him brandishing the Mark Milley invasion of Iran document, an actual U.S. war plan, the stealing of which is almost as nefarious a crime as anybody could commit. We know from that document that Trump had it handy because he was angry that Milley had publicly accused him of fomenting war with Iran. Purposeful theft, the idea that each document was seen as a separate opportunity by Trump to use as a cudgel or as a shield, given very specific circumstances. There really have been only two other posited explanations. They have been pushed by Trump apologists, mostly, and they are twin excuses. He's a pack rat. He keeps everything. There was nothing nefarious in him shipping box after box after box after box after box of highly classified secret documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. Some of the documents so secret that nobody who now knows that they exist is legally allowed to know that they exist. He just kept everything that was handed to him in order to keep them for himself, like baseball cards. The other version of this is the one favored by those who worked with Trump the last two years based on markings on the boxes themselves. The beautiful mind psychosis theory, noting that Trump often traveled with these boxes filled with paper, some of it classified paper, some of it not classified paper. This explanation goes that Trump did not take anything to sell it. He didn't take anything to keep it. He didn't take anything to blackmail with them nor defend with them. He didn't take them to prove specific things to specific people later. He took all of it to prove he's alive, to prove he exists. That everybody gains the fundamental existential validation. I am here. I have been here. I have made my impression on the world through something, through children, through accomplishments, through money. That is a kind of given in life. 
And this theory goes that Trump and others whose brains don't work properly must keep and keep nearby within reach tangible records of what they have brushed up against in their lives. And if those things are not nearby, they cannot be certain that they really have been alive. And then, of course, there is the final option, all of the above. Blake does remind us of something relevant, though not decisive. Quote, Smith's team has clearly shown an interest in whether Trump used the documents for his personal advantage. In April, it subpoenaed information about the dealings of Trump's businesses with foreign countries, for instance, apparently in search of a possible financial motive. But just as quickly as this seeming clue to Smith's riddle is offered to us, Blake snatches it back. But such a motive wasn't referenced in Trump's indictment, unquote. So what is it? Oddly enough, the day's latest headlines from the nightmare in Israel actually support an entirely different, albeit not an entirely new, explanation. Descending into immorality exceeded only by the Hamas terrorists themselves, Senator Hawley, Republican of Missouri, has now demanded that American aid to Ukraine be cut off and the money sent instead to Israel as if there were a reason for such a false either-or choice. He is apparently unaware that people can see that Hawley's own performance and that of the rest of the Republican anti-Ukraine caucus is not in support of Israel, but actually is in support of Hamas and Iran and Russia. Twice in the last year, the Kremlin invited Hamas to send delegations to Moscow, and the terrorist group's leadership met with Putin's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, in September 2022 and this past March. There is considerable analysis being done, particularly in Europe, that the Russians encouraged, even bribed Hamas to undertake this full-scale attack that began from the Gaza Strip on Saturday and continues even at this hour. The Russians, this analysis reasons, wanted this not merely because they have been Israel's implacable existential enemy since 1948 and because they are Iran's leading ally, but also because a Middle East conflict of almost any size would amount to a second front in which Western resources being dedicated now to fighting the Russian invasion of Ukraine might be redirected to protect Israel. In other words, Josh Hawley is doing exactly what the Russians want, degrading Western support for Ukraine on the false excuse that the money must go instead to defend Israel. That would only give Russia a freer hand in Ukraine and more money and materiel to send to Hamas to defeat Israel as Iran wants. In this equation, Hawley is a Russian dupe, helping Hamas, helping Iran, encouraging conflagration in the Middle East, encouraging more attacks on Israel. And even the Republicans who are not as easily led by the nose as this Hawley, the ones not explicitly saying redirect American aid from Ukraine to Israel, the ones who are only concerned that money not be spent on Ukraine under any circumstances, they are also doing Hamas's job for them. 
less trouble for Russia in Ukraine means more Russian resources for Hamas and more trouble and more death for Israel. Jim Jordan, by this measure, is helping Hamas. Marjorie Taylor Greene is helping Hamas. Congressman Matt Gates is helping Hamas. Congressman James Comer, Congressman Byron Donalds, the woman who calls herself Anna Paulina Luna, Good of Virginia, Gozar, Biggs, Bobart. Kevin McCarthy pulled funding out of the last continuing resolution he passed as Speaker. That helps Hamas. There were 93 Republicans in the House who voted two weeks ago tomorrow to cut Ukraine funding out of the defense budget. At that point, before the gathering Hamas storm was known to be on the way outside the Middle East and perhaps Moscow, those 93 could have pleaded ignorance. And who could argue with Boebert saying she was ignorant? They could get away with admitting their own stupidity. Now, they cannot. To oppose American support of Ukraine is to encourage and embolden Russia. And to embolden Russia is to free Russia to help Hamas more. It is a straight line. And the Russian Republicans in the House are not alone in walking that line. Ron DeSantis opposes aid to Ukraine, and thus he is helping Hamas and hurting Israel in this way. Vivek Ramaswamy opposes aid to Ukraine, and he is thus helping Hamas and hurting Israel in this way. And most relevantly, with his constant bleedings about President Biden putting Ukraine first and America last, Donald Trump is helping Hamas and Iran and hurting Israel, and it circles back Back to that question Jack Smith has promised to answer at trial, why Trump stole our secrets. Because that ties all of it together. Russian support of Hamas and its cloudy role in the attack on Israel. Republican support for Hamas by pulling the rug out from under Ukraine's defense against Russia. And Trump's criminal use of American classified intelligence as if it were gossip tips that he was giving to the New York Post's page six in a phone call in which he called himself John Barron. It must not be forgotten, especially not at this exact hour, that on May 10th, 2017, in the Oval Office, Trump disclosed classified intelligence. Classified intelligence obtained by the Israelis and shared with this nation classified information about an ISIS plot that the Israelis unraveled in a town in Syria. Trump gave that information directly to Putin's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Where have we heard that name before? He is the same man who has twice met with the Hamas delegations in Moscow in the last year. At the time Trump gave away Israeli intelligence, the biggest fear was that the details of how Israel interrupted an ISIS scheme, how it penetrated a terror network, would wind up in the hands of the Iranians. Now we know that we had just as much to fear from the realization that Trump gave Israel's secrets to Lavrov and Russia, and Lavrov and Russia could have in turn given them to Hamas. Trump, in effect, is working against Israel, 
on behalf of Hamas, on behalf of Iran, and as ever, on behalf of Russia. As an aside, it is not lost on me as it might not be lost on you. I spent the first half of my life looking on in astonishment at the universal demonization in this country of Russia by Republicans and the far right. It made little sense. Russia's collapse, caused in fact by union organizers in Poland, but claimed by Republicans as Ronald Reagan's magic, as if Reagan had anything to do with it, other than the fact that he was only joking that he had signed legislation to outlaw Russia and would begin bombing in five minutes. Russia's collapse because of its own weight, seemed to reorder American reaction to the former Soviet Union. And here we are 30 years after that happened, and Republicans, ranging from this despicable, manipulative bastard Josh Hawley through these literally cretinous humanoids like Boebert and Gates and Green, right on to the pro-dictatorship, always authoritarian Trump, they are serving Russian needs as well as any paid agents could. And I am sitting here saying Russia is the devil. As I said yesterday, this is not sophisticated analysis, and it does not have to be sophisticated. The Russians wanted to weaken America by widening its divisions and fissures, and so it buttressed Trump's candidacy. The Russians wanted to reassemble the Soviet Union, reclaim Ukraine now and probably Poland later, and so it attacked Ukraine and counted on Trump to stand aside. And it went back in thinking Trump had poisoned the American well sufficiently to still weaken support for Ukraine under Biden. But they were mistaken about that. That failed and it failed and it needed somebody to cut off American aid to Ukraine. And in part, to make that more likely, it befriended Hamas, and Hamas attacked Israel, and Josh Hawley could get up and pretend he was supporting Israel by demanding that the aid meant for Ukraine be directed to Israel. It is not either or. We spend too much money on the military. What we have sent to Ukraine, what we are scheduled still to send to Ukraine, what we will send in the future to Ukraine amounts to less than 5% of our military budget. It is less than 0.33% of our gross domestic product. That's half of what Poland is spending. That is a quarter of what Latvia is spending. And the only positive to our military-industrial-psychological complex is that we have unbelievable quantities of weapons and other materiel at the ready. We could fully stock Ukraine and Israel and half a dozen other nations, and that would not even free up half a dozen parking spots at the Pentagon. The Russians are as evil now as the Republicans believed they were in the 1950s. And the Republicans are as much a pro-Russian fifth column in this country as the Republicans believed liberals were in the same era. And in a sane country, we would right now collectively be so effectively chasing the Trumps and the Gateses and the Ramaswamis, and especially this scumbag Hawley, that the way Hawley ran to escape his own mob on January 6th would seem like nothing more than a warm-up exercise. <laughs> 
As a follow-up to yesterday's analysis that the failure of intelligence in Israel was not of military intelligence nor counterintelligence, but that of Benjamin Netanyahu's personal intelligence, there is not only yet another confirmation that the Egyptians warned the Netanyahu government that something bad and large was headed its way, but that, quote, senior Egyptian officials had warned Israel of an impending assault from Gaza, unquote. The news source is the Middle East-centric news site Al Monitor, citing its own sources, confirming the previous four or five legitimate reports about the Egyptian warning, but with an added twist, quoting it again. They said Egyptian intelligence officials had indeed shared warnings with their Israeli counterparts, but the information was not specific or focused, and, and here is the critical tell, and was not brought to Netanyahu's attention, unquote. Thus, can one work backwards and guess pretty quickly and probably pretty accurately that the only people in the Israeli government or the Israeli military who would tell any journalist anywhere that, who would say, well, yes, there was a warning of a massive attack coming from Gaza, but no, of course we didn't tell the prime minister. The prime minister who yearns for any excuse to attack any threat from any Arab neighbor. The only people who would say that would be those who so keenly felt the need to protect Netanyahu that they were willing to throw their own intelligence services under the bus to do so. One last note from another bus and others being thrown under it from far less afield and last night's Republican circular firing squad non-surprise. Jordan and Scalise, neither of them got enough support to become speaker. And no, when they asked Jordan if he would commit to backing Scalise, if Scalise won the nomination, he wouldn't say it. And when Congressman Ken Buck got up at the Republican coven last night and asked both of them if Trump won or lost in 2020, neither gave a straight answer. Kevin McCarthy asked his pals not to nominate him to be the next speaker, and that changes nothing about my prediction that he will at least be in the final vote for speaker. Oh, and George Santos attended, and then on the way out, he pretended he knew nothing about these 23 counts, you say, in the new conspiracy and fraud indictment against him, which includes allegations of stealing the identities and the credit cards of his own donors. You know, if he's found guilty of that, that would make him the 227th most corrupt Republican in the country. And lastly... Congresswoman Nancy Mace wore to this conference a T-shirt with a red letter A over her breasts. She insisted she was wearing the scarlet letter. She called it the scarlet letter because she'd been demonized for the last week over her vote and her gender. And God damn it, it's the first time I can think of that she's ever told the truth. Also, once again, golf clap for choosing to actually get out of bed, Congresswoman. Also of interest here, Senator Steve Garvey, 
Literally four decades after he first seemed to be the rising young star of the Republican Party, the ex-Los Angeles Dodger most valuable player will run for the Senate. Why the wait? Something that only time could accomplish. Most of the people who remember the Steve Garvey scandals of 1988 and 1989 are dead or have forgotten the Steve Garvey scandals. So guess whose job it is, to whom it falls, to remind you of the Steve Garvey scandals of 1988 and 1989. Your hints are the father of our country and a giant sign at a ballpark which read, Steve, Marvin Hamlish? That's next. This is Countdown. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, Steve Garvey, who 50 seasons ago suddenly blossomed from underachieving utility man of the Los Angeles Dodgers to the most valuable player in the National League, has announced he is running for the Republican nomination for Senator from California. He is 74 years old, and though the prospect of a political career was raised long before injuries forced him to retire as an active player in 1987, this will be his maiden political attempt. California Democrats outnumber California Republicans two to one. On the other hand, in a poll last month, Garvey led all possible Republican senatorial candidates. On the other other hand, he led all of them with the support of 7% of all of California's voters. Why has he waited so long to run for office? Well, one of the reasons might be he was waiting for everybody to forget In 1983, Steve Garvey and his wife Cindy, a Good Morning L.A.-type host, divorced. He had a girlfriend, his former secretary. At the same time, he had another girlfriend, an assignment editor for CNN in Atlanta. And just as he was about to propose to her in 1988, he found out that a medical sales rep from San Diego was pregnant with his child. Then the assignment editor got pregnant. Then there was his other girlfriend, Candace, and she got pregnant three times. As a result, Steve Garvey earned a new nickname that tied into his political aspirations, the father of our country, Bob Hope, did Steve Garvey fatherhood jokes. Thank you, Nancy Faust. As early as 1981, Garvey had told Playboy magazine he thought about becoming president. Father of our country, indeed. That was just about the time, however, late in the baseball season, that his wife left him to begin a relationship with the rather nerdy film composer Marvin Hamlish. When his Dodgers got to Yankee Stadium for Game 1 of the 1981 World Series, a giant banner hung briefly 
From the upper deck in right field, it read in giant block letters, Steve, Marvin Hamlish? Steve Garvey's been hoping everybody's forgotten about all that, and he might be right. The story in the L.A. Times announcing his candidacy doesn't mention any of it. Not the girlfriends, not the kids, not the Marvin Hamlish banner. On the other hand, all of his children are now of voting age, so that's, what, a couple hundred votes right there? Thank you again, Nancy Faust. Speaking of Garvey, I am the last person ever to root for the Los Angeles Dodgers. But if you have finished with the best record in baseball, 22 games ahead of the second-place San Diego Padres in 2022, and then you have finished with the second-best record in baseball, 16 games ahead of the second-place Arizona Diamondbacks in 2023 to win the National League Western Division and four days off and the bye and home field advantage two years in a row— and you play the 2022 Padres and you lose to them in four games, and you play the 2023 Diamondbacks and you lose the first two games to them by a combined score of 15-4 to at your home stadium, and you are on the verge of being eliminated in the first round again. And the same thing could happen to the Eastern champion Atlanta Braves also for the second straight year. One of the following two things is necessarily true. A, there is something desperately wrong with the baseball playoff structure or b there is something desperately wrong with the baseball regular season structure maybe both what is the point of even trying to win your division or for that matter trying harder than is absolutely necessary just to reach the playoffs if how well you do in the regular season is irrelevant in the playoffs I have frequently bemoaned baseball's murder of its own authentic, organic rivalry, the American League versus the National League in the World Series, which made baseball hands down the most popular postseason sport well into the 1980s. When adjusted for population growth, the television audience for the World Series in the 1980s was roughly four times what it is now, and any two broadcasts of World Series games had a larger audience than the Super Bowl, as opposed to today, when the Super Bowl will outrate a full, highly watched seven-game World Series in its entirety. I think one of the factors is what we're seeing in these postseasons. The premise of the regular season You give every team in the American League essentially an identical task. You can be pretty confident you've sent the best team or at least the second best team in the league to the World Series. Same for the National League. That has been erased by interleague play. Teams do not play the same schedules anymore. They don't play each other team as many times as their competition does, yet the season is still the same extraordinary length, 162 games, as it used to be when they still did play every other team the same number of games as every other team. Thus, the baseball season is interminably long. Almost none of it matters, except which players you trade for on August 1st 
and which players get injured during the season. And if a mediocre team that in previous years would not have been in the playoffs would have been eliminated in September can stay alive and get hot for three weeks, it can win the World Series. It's madness. 14 wildcard teams have reached the World Series. Seven have won the World Series. And with there now being as many wildcard teams as there are division winners, that number will likely increase. So we will see the spectacle of more Arizona Diamondbacks and San Diego Padres knocking off teams they were 14 or 16 or 22 games worse than, and each time it will delegitimize the regular season or the playoffs or both just a little bit more. As it is right now, I don't really know what the point of watching the regular season is. I just know that it doesn't really matter, and they're beginning to lose me. And I used to host the World Series. The basketball and hockey regular seasons basically began as simple and comparatively short seeding contests for their playoffs, as did football. I guess if baseball wants to go that route, have fun. But the fans seem to be wising up to it. Baseball's saving grace is that the other sports usually find ways, of course, to screw up other things that make them look small and petty. Last year, National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman proved, yes, he could screw it up worse by folding to homophobic players and the new American fascists of the Republican Party and ending the traditional and by that point no longer controversial Pride Night warm-up uniforms. Now the league has sent a simpering, cowering message to its teams, banning the use even of Pride-colored tape on players' sticks on Pride Nights and protecting homophobes like players Ivan Provorov and Eric Stahl and Mark Stahl and Ilya Labushkin and Denis Gurianov and Andrei Kuzmenko and unnamed Minnesota Wild and New York Rangers players. Instead of banning these guys as the worms they are or asking, why are we prioritizing Russians, some of whom have openly backed the dictator Putin while taking our money? Why are we prioritizing them instead of, say, you know, the fans... The NHL has now issued this amazing statement, quote, players shall not be put in the position of having to demonstrate or where they may be appearing to demonstrate personal support for any special initiatives. As an aside, I'm just thinking about all those pro-cancer players this protects. A factor that may be considered in this regard includes, for example, whether a player or players is required to be in close proximity to any groups or individuals visibly or otherwise clearly associated with such special initiatives. I mean, Commissioner Bettman, you might as well have written that the players should not be required to stand too close to the Pride Night participants because maybe hockey's gutless bosses and its prejudiced players, among the many non-prejudiced players, might just think that the gay is infectious. One more hockey note about a longtime colleague, Barry Melrose, who has spent most of the last 28 years as the primary hockey analyst at ESPN, is stepping away from that network after a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. I have never met an ex-athlete who stepped more seamlessly into broadcasting, largely because Melrose never acted like he was only doing it till he could get back into coaching. Ironically, he did get back into coaching, for 16 games in 2008 before he got fired and his embrace of broadcasting was even more total and more joyful and even grateful the second time around.
there are two notes to mention here about Barry Melrose. The most valuable rookie hockey card in the 1979-80 hockey card series belongs, unsurprisingly, to Wayne Gretzky. But I once asked Barry Melrose on air if he knew who the second most valuable rookie card in that series was. He did not. It's his. Barry Melrose, defenseman, Winnipeg Jets. And if you ever watch a hockey playoff game and it goes into overtime and you spontaneously start a gambling pool or just a for-fun pool about who's going to score the sudden-death game-winning goal, you kind of have Barry Melrose to thank. In the tiny studio of 1995 and 1996 and 1997 that SportsCenter shared with the NHL show on ESPN and Baseball Tonight and everybody else, as soon as regulation ended in a tie, Barry would cheerfully shout, Okay, who you got? Barry Melrose would take down everybody's dollar and keep track of which players were and were not still available. And he'd usually all keep which staffers had chosen which players in his head. And he never participated. He never chose a player. He just, he just was the banker, like in Monopoly. I once asked him why. Easiest way to make new hockey fans. Everybody was invested in every overtime game. Thanks to Barry Melrose. Barry, all of us send all of our best wishes. Still ahead on an all-new edition of Countdown, two words no broadcaster in any format or medium should ever say. I heard them again yesterday on the air, and it flashed me back to the day 45 years ago that the best communications professor I ever had warned me, never say that. Things I promise not to tell next. First, with the note that if you ever wanted to be chief communications officer of CNN, they just posted the job on Indeed. Wow. Don't everybody rush at once. But first, time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's other worst persons in the world. The bronze, former NFL quarterback Aaron, no yards, no cloud of dust, just a torn Achilles Rodgers of the New York Jets, who has fully gone off the deep end. He has challenged Travis Kelsey of the Kansas City Chiefs, who does commercials for the COVID vaccines, to a debate over Rogers' conspiracy theory, delusion, nutjob ramblings. Rogers says they should each have seconds at this debate that's not going to happen except in Aaron's head. Rogers says he'll bring Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And Kelsey should bring Dr. Anthony Fauci. That's Travis Kelsey, who who is, if you had not heard, dating, what's the name here? Taylor Swift versus Aaron Rodgers, whose only publicity seems to be coming from being a new sidekick on the Pat McAfee show, which has produced surprisingly poor ratings after it switched to ESPN. Why would Travis Kelsey waste his time on a has-been like Aaron Rodgers? The runner-up, A.J. Fisher, who had been ranked number 222 on the FBI's most wanted list for January 6th. Fisher was the guy with the oiled chest and the Ray-Bans. 
He's still awaiting trial, but Fisher has now asked the court to let him leave Florida, I guess, for a wedding in Puerto Rico with his fiance so they can take their child with them. Otherwise, she will have to go alone, Fisher says, and leave the child with him, and he will have to take care of the child who is apparently still nursing. Fisher assumes that prosecutors will want him to stay and breastfeed the child himself because they, quote, have fallen for such disinformation as, quote, the recent anti-biology myth of male chest feeding. Because these January 6th morons still believe whatever they read on 4chan. Sure, the court wants you to breastfeed your, your child, sir. I know who you should call. Call Aaron Rodgers. But the winner, Murdoch's New York Post and Fox News, a study by the website Axios, indicates that in the last year, the Post has run 552 stories mentioning Ron DeSantis, who is, laughably or otherwise, a presidential candidate. But it's run 784 articles, more than two a day, about Hunter Biden. Meanwhile, for the last year, the Fox Propaganda Channel has devoted an average of 33 minutes a month to mentioning the name Donald Trump and 27 minutes a month to mentioning the name Hunter Biden. Hidden in this non-journalistic madness is something for Democrats to consider. If Trump proved that name recognition and media attention could be all that you really needed to win the White House, and if the Democratic hierarchy actually might consider somebody other than the president for the 2024 election, the choice to swap in in his place, I think that's clear. The guy all the voters know is Hunter Biden. Rupert Murdoch and the other people who run Fox, quote, News and the New York Post. I mean, what the hell, Rupert? I thought you were leaving or getting cryogenically frozen or non-cryogenically frozen or something. Let's go. How are we going to miss you if you don't go away? Today's worst persons in the world. Freeze, Rupert Murdoch, today. I was listening to all news radio yesterday, a daunting prospect, which I do not advise you to do yourself, when a promo came on for somebody's podcast. In fact, it was Richard Deitch, the former Sports Illustrated sports media critic who now writes for The Athletic and does this podcast. And this is nothing particularly against Richard Deitch. He's made a few mistakes in his career. We all have. But he said something at the start of this promo for the podcast that flashed me back to a date in 1978 or 1979 and one of the best pieces of advice I ever heard that still seems to have not caught on almost anywhere else in broadcasting. This is the way Richard Deitch began his promo for his podcast. And I checked a couple of his podcasts and he begins it the same way, too. Hi, everybody. Let me ask you a question. How many times have you listened to a podcast with somebody? My guess is the answer is never, not once, never, ever, ever. People listen to podcasts, to streaming services, to 
news radio to music radio largely by themselves. In fact, they tend to consume television largely by themselves. So why does anybody say, hi, everybody, and what do they think the impact is going to be when they say that? Moreover, even if you are watching television or listening to radio in a group of two or more people, do you want to be addressed as everybody? Or is that in some way off-putting? I've always thought that psychologically, this might explain for 25 to 50% of the times people say, I, 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 don't, I don't like that guy's podcast. I don't like that guy's radio show. I don't like that guy. And they really don't have a further answer beyond that. There are so many psychological connections or disconnections between the broadcaster, for want of a better term, and the listener that I think they populate the entire interaction. And without making this sound like too much of one of the Cornell Communication Arts theory courses that I was subjected to, forced to take against my will between the years 1975 and 1979, which did give me some of the best naps I've ever had in my life, trying to avoid making it in that, I do think there's something to it. And that's where the flashback came. I had the benefit of one really superb professor at Cornell University in the Communication Arts Department. His name was Don Martin. That was his American name. He once told me his birth name, and I could not pronounce it, and he could barely pronounce it, and I could not remember it and could not still. He was a Polish war refugee. As a young man, I think seven or eight years old, he came from Poland to the United States in the 1930s, the late 1930s, at the advent of World War II, and wound up in Ithaca, New York, not speaking a word of English and having to learn everything from scratch. And what he learned was, as good diction and as much of an announcing voice as I have ever heard in any human being. When I first got to Ithaca, New York at the age of 16 and put the radio on to the Cornell-owned radio station WHCU, I heard this voice and I assumed it was the CBS radio network announcer doing something, and then he started talking about the Cornell football score. He was announcing the Cornell football game, and it was as good a broadcast as I had ever heard, which got me very worried about my prospects of getting anywhere in radio anywhere at all, let alone just Ithaca, New York on the Cornell student radio station. But I found out later his name was Don Martin. And then much to my delight, when I was a junior, it turned out he was teaching the radio writing and production course. Now, most of the Cornell communication arts courses, although they have improved in the ensuing 40 years, uh, they weren't that really good then, particularly the ones that pertain to writing things or broadcasting things. The theory of communications, maybe how to, uh, I don't know, own a radio station. Those classes were okay. But the production ones, with the exception of Professor Don Martin's class, eh, not so much. Don happened to be not just the football announcer for WHCU, but he was also the general manager of the station. And he taught this course, and I learned things from him when I had not really learned anything from any of my other communication arts professors in the entire time I was there. And it went so well that Don actually asked me to be his teaching assistant when I was a senior the next year. So I came back and had to get special permission from the course 
director from the communication arts department, from the University Agriculture College, from the university itself, because they did not have undergraduate teaching assistants except, except with special permission. And Don Martin asked for me, and I got to be his teaching assistant. And one day, either in 1978 or perhaps more likely in 1979 when I was working for him, we were seated outside the ancient ag quad building in which he taught this course, discussing what we were going to do in the day ahead. And he was just ruminating about things like, have you ever noticed during allergy season that you don't actually sneeze or cough when you go onto the radio? What does this tell you about the psychology of broadcasting and of allergies? Well, that had me going for about a week, wondering what that all meant. But then he said something else. And this takes us back to Richard Deitch, the poor victim of this flashback. Don Martin said, you know, one thing I noticed in listening to one of your broadcasts on WVBR was you just said hello or thank you in the name of the other announcer. You did not say hello, everyone, or good morning, Ithaca. And he got very agitated. And he was very fair-skinned and light-haired, and he got red. And Don Martin said, you know, whenever I hear someone say, hello, everyone, or good morning, Ithaca, I turn around and I look to see if somebody has come into the room with me. Remember this, Keith. Broadcasting is one to one. Speak to the other person, not persons. When you say everyone, everybody, when you address them as if you are standing in front of a crowd of hundreds or thousands, or if you're really egotistical, millions, that's just for you. That aids nothing in the communication between you and the listener. Don't say that. And tell others who do not to say that. Because even if you are part of a crowd listening to a broadcast, my experience is when I am greeted in that way and they say, hello, everyone, and there's a bunch of us together, I assume that the guy is talking to everyone else. The wisdom of Don Martin has lasted me now 44 years plus. I saw him again, interestingly enough. We were both back on the Cornell campus one day in 1998. I was giving the commencement address, and he had retired to Seattle, Washington, if I remember correctly. And we had a lovely, lovely afternoon and a nice meal, and he was very, very laudatory towards my career, and I was more laudatory towards the help that he gave me. And we discussed this one thing, and he said, have you noticed that my wise words have gotten absolutely nowhere in the 20 years since I spoke them to you. And I said, yes, yes, I have. And to make it even worse, remember this part. I have added my voice to the chorus of people saying, don't say hello, everybody. And he said, yes, it just proves another one of my points. They may be listening, but they don't seem to be hearing anything that we're saying. And I said to him as I said goodbye and we embraced and he went back to Seattle and I went to prepare my speech. I said, goodbye, everybody, and he laughed, and we embraced again, and that was the last I ever saw of him. But this is just a reminder. If you start a podcast, and the odds, I believe, now are about two to one in favor of you eventually someday doing a podcast or hosting a show on a cable news network, don't 
say everybody. Just say hi. Or don't say hi at all. I'm not in the room with you. Just start. Or say good evening, something generic. Don't say, hello, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. And certainly don't say, if you remember my story about the Los Angeles newscaster who lasted 700 years on that job, Jerry Dunphy, do not say, from the desert to the sea to all of Southern California, a good evening. Well, now the guy's talking to the desert and the sea and all of Southern California. He certainly doesn't mean me. And on that note, so long, everybody. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you all for listening. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully studio at the Olbermann Broadcasting Empire in New York, so named because there are four pictures of Vin on the door outside the studio. The music you've heard was, for the most part, arranged, produced, and performed by Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. Brian Ray handled the guitars, bass, and drums. John Philip Chanel did the orchestration and keyboards, and it was produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including other Beethoven songs, were arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is courtesy of ESPN Inc., and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis. We call it the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Jonathan Banks. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 1,009th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him now while we still can. The next scheduled Countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck, everybody, everyone, Ithaca, world. Bye, everybody. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. 
In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.